When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. I'm Jared Halverson, thrilled to have you back for some more time in the scriptures here on Unshaken. Congratulations on making it through the Book of Alma. It's the biggest book in the Book of Mormon. And for some, the war chapters at the end can be almost as daunting as the Isaiah chapters in 2 Nephi. But with Alma in our rearview mirror, things seem to pick up speed with Helaman and 3 Nephi and then 4 Nephi on to the end. And remember, the Book of Mormon is our preview of coming attractions, our scale model of the last days. In Mosiah, the church was organized. In Alma, it began to spread through those missionary chapters. Wars and rumors of wars by the end of the book. In the book of Helaman, we start to see even more signs of the times. Wickedness in high places. Secret combinations. Signs on earth and in heaven. The Lamanites beginning to blossom as the rose. All in preparation for the great events in 3 Nephi. The destruction of the wicked and the coming of Christ. Ready to usher in this mini-millennium in 4 Nephi. A return to wickedness at the end and then these final battles in Mormon and Moroni. That is the last days. And as far as I can tell, keeping an eye on current events, we seem to be living sometime in the book of Helaman. In fact, there's a fascinating phrase in chapter 7. I know that's part of next week's material, but I think this verse helps encapsulate the entire book of Helaman. And better yet, helps us see the relevance of this book to our lives. In chapter 7, we hear from Nephi, the son of Helaman. In fact, this might be a good place to just insert this. Alma, Helaman, and 3 Nephi can be tricky because there were two Almas, elder and younger, two Helamans, father and son, and two Nephi's, father and son. In fact, that's six generations of the same family. And I've found that the easiest way to remember things is that the name of the book is always named after the second in the pair because the first in the pair spends most of their lives in the previous book. Alma the elder is in the book of Mosiah for the most part. The book of Alma is about Alma the Younger. The first Helaman spends his life in the book of Alma. Stripling warriors, all that kind of stuff. The book of Helaman is about that second generation, Helaman the second. And then Helaman's son Nephi is still in the book of Helaman. He's the one we're listening to in chapter 7. And then his son, the second of those two Nephi's, is in the book of third Nephi. But anyway, Helaman 7, here you have Nephi, son of Helaman. And he's looking all around him and just lamenting the day that he lives in. He compares himself to his own ancestor, Nephi. His dad had told him he should do that. But this time he's getting a little nostalgic for the good old days. Thinking, man, that Nephi had it relatively easy compared to me. Now, that's not entirely true. You try growing up with Laman and Lemuel as big brothers, right? And even though that earlier Nephi did face some systemic wickedness in Jerusalem, they took off, escaped it all to be able to come to this new promised land. And that doesn't exactly seem like an option for this Nephi. But I love in chapter 7, verse 9, he kind of comes to grips with all of that and says, But behold, I am consigned that these are my days. Elder Neelay Maxwell once gave a talk where he took that phrase and applied it to all of us. 
These are your days, he said. And that is such an important reminder as we study the book of Helaman. Because really, these are our days. The description in this book of what was taking place in Nephite society is eerily similar to what we face in society today, making the book of Helaman incredibly relevant to our situation. So what were his days and what are our days? Does this sound familiar? The book of Helaman begins with political contention and war, secret combinations seeking power and wealth, righteousness being condemned and wickedness held up, a spread of materialism and worldliness, the manipulation of public opinion, and through it all, prophets crying repentance in hopes of preparing the people for the coming of Christ. If that doesn't sound familiar, spend a little more time watching the evening news. And yet, just as we see the Lord working from the inside out, you see the adversary doing likewise in these chapters. And if I had to boil the first half of the book of Helaman down to a single word, one that's equally applicable in our day as in theirs, let's get to it in chapter 4, verse 12. But I want to read it in reverse. I know that sounds odd, but pay attention to the sins that are listed in chapter 4, verse 12. And by reading the verse backwards, we start with the branches and slowly work our way back down to the trunk. In fact, down to the root of the problem. Here's the list. Deserting from the Nephites to the Lamanites. We could call that abandoning the cause of righteousness to espouse the cause of wickedness instead. Contentions. Adultery. Stealing, lying, plundering, murdering, denying the spirit of prophecy and of revelation. So we're not only seeing the embrace of the negative, but the rejection of the positive. Making a mock of that which was sacred. Persecuting the humble. Neglecting the poor. Again, sound familiar? Class divisions, loss of faith, an increase in wickedness. But where does it all begin? What's the first problem mentioned in that verse? And it was because of the pride of their hearts. It was their pride that rooted them in their riches. It was their pride that caused them to neglect the poor and the needy. Pride that made them think they didn't need God and didn't need to feel bound by his commandments. President Benson called pride the universal sin. And part of that is because it's something that affects all of us. But also it's universal because it's a part of every other sin. And we'll see that today. President Benson described both pride from above and pride from below. So wherever we happen to be on the ladder, high or low, pride is going to be a problem we have to overcome. In fact, I remember a lesson years ago in seminary where I was trying to help the students get a sense that pride really is universal among us all. So I set out some chairs at the front of the class. First was this nice cushy office chair. Then when there was a padded seat, the kind you'd get in a waiting room somewhere. Then just one of those hardback plastic chairs like students sit in. Then a stool. And then finally, the trash can turned upside down. And we literally played musical chairs of sorts. I said, okay, what kind of car do you drive? Come up and sit. And at first it was kind of awkward as the students were like, wait, really? Are we, are we ranking ourselves? Oh, well, yeah, of course. You do it all the time. Let's just get it out in the open. What kind of car do you drive? And I just picked five students and they described the kind of cars that they, or borrowing from their parents, that they happened to drive. And there we sat, from cushy office chair down to trash can. And I said, great. Uh, how about where do you live? And again, it was like, whoa, are we really doing this? Yeah, we're doing it. And we ranked ourselves, where people lived, the kind of housing they came from. 
we started to go in different directions from there. Things like, what extracurricular activities are you involved in? And it was interesting to see them, teenagers, ranking how popular are certain sports versus other activities versus non-involvement. We even did things like, okay, what's your dad's church calling? You could just sense this, ew, this uncomfortable feeling they had about the kinds of places pride pops up. In fact, it hit me by the end of the exercise that there were a few students that were sitting back that never had to come up and kept thinking, <laughs> I'm immune. Because the students who really felt the most uncomfortable, and this was surprising, I think, to all of us, were not the ones that were sitting on the trash can each time, but the ones that were sitting in the cushy chair. Pride itself started to feel uncomfortable. Like, who do I think I am? Looking down the row at my supposed lessers. So I said, okay, last round. Who hasn't had to sit in the cushy chair? And they were like, huh? Like, yeah. You're proud of your lack of pride. So come see what it feels like. It was a fascinating exercise. After that, we rearranged the classroom and put all the desks in four different sections, all facing the middle. And in the middle was that nice cushy chair. Not just because it was the seat of pride, but because it swiveled. And we talked about the pride cycle so that we could bring up a student and sit them in that chair and face them to the quarter of the class that represented prosperity, the blessings of God, and talk about what that looked like in their lives, and then start to swivel them and move them toward the section of the class that represented the movement towards pride in that prosperity. And what did pride look like and feel like based on the type of prosperity they were enjoying at the moment? Once we understood pride, we'd swivel the chair again and look at the part of the class that represented destruction. Pride goeth before the fall, right? I still remember one young man that was a basketball player. And in a moment of amazing honesty on his part, he described the prosperity he'd been feeling in his basketball career and the pride that it led to and some of the destruction on the court that he had experienced of late, which then allowed us to turn to that fourth group to talk about humility, repentance, return to righteousness, and what that would look like within their role, and how it would then turn them back to prosperity, where this all began. That, in a nutshell, is the beginning of the book of Helaman. We could stop the video right now and just turn you loose. I won't do that. But keep an eye out for it throughout the book of Helaman, so that we can, more importantly, Keep an eye out for it in our lives. We're all in that cushy swivel chair in some aspect of life. With that in mind, go back to Helaman chapter 1. These are our days, so let's see them. In fact, what I love about Helaman chapter 1 is, to me, it's a scale model of the war in heaven. It introduces us to the author of pride, pride personified, Lucifer. In fact, isn't his rebellion the first instance of the pride cycle? He was an angel in authority in the presence of God. There's prosperity. But he ended up presenting his plan because he wanted the glory of the Father. There's pride. It doesn't get much more intense than that. And so what happened? As he rebelled, he was defeated and cast out of heaven. That's destruction to the ultimate degree. And what kept that downfall from truly coming full circle was that he absolutely refused, and still does, to ever turn towards humility to ever soften his heart, repent of his sins, and return to righteousness and the prosperity that accompanies it. 
Well, let me sum up chapter 1 very briefly, historically, as far as the Book of Mormon is concerned, and then let's start drawing some more significant parallels to that war in heaven. You see, by the time the Book of Helaman begins, Pahoran, the chief judge, has passed away. Now, if you remember Pahoran's response to Captain Moroni back in chapter 61, what a loss to Nephite society. The man had a heart of gold, but he's gone. He has three sons. Like a lot of families in our day, he seemed to like using alliteration among his children's names. And so his three sons were Pahoran, Jr., Pecumenai, and Payankai. And the decision would be placed before the people which of those three sons would become Pahoran's successor, who would occupy the judgment seat. So here's how it goes down. Nephite society basically splits along those three lines. But the majority ends up ruling in favor of Pahoran II, and he becomes the chief judge. The followers of Pecumenai accept that result and fall into line, but the followers of Payankai and Payankai himself absolutely refuse to accept the people's decision. So he rebels and is eventually tried and executed for treason. Meanwhile, one of those discontents goes and slays Pahoran on the judgment seat, so the mantle of authority passes to Pecumenai. But then he and his people are then attacked by a dissenter named Coriantumr, and Pecumenai is killed in the battle. It's crazy, but by the end of chapter 1 of Helaman, all three sons of Pahoran are dead. And by the time chapter 2 begins, the judgment seat has passed back to Alma's family line, with Helaman II becoming the chief judge. I know that can kind of be confusing. It's sort of a whirlwind chapter. But notice the parallels to the war in heaven, all brought on because of Lucifer's pride. Verse 1, there was a serious difficulty among the people because they have to decide where real authority will reside. Sound a little like the Father's great question, Whom shall I send? In verse 2, there began to be serious contention concerning who should have the judgment seat. Jehovah comes forward, here am I, send me. But Lucifer comes forward as well. No, 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 here am I, send me. Verse 3, that division caused the people to contend as well, just as we see war erupt in heaven. Verse 4, there were three divisions among the people. Now that doesn't quite seem to connect until you realize that in verse 6, once Pahoran is appointed and Pecumenized people follow suit, now it's two-thirds against one-third. There is one-third of this group who rebels against the decision of the other two-thirds, just like a third of the host of heaven rebelled against the Father's plan. You see in verse 5, the voice of the people came out in favor of Pahoran, just like we chose Christ and his redeeming role in the Father's plan. The voice of the people were in favor of the Father and the Son. In verse 7, the loser, Paankai, if we're looking at the Book of Mormon, or Lucifer, if we're thinking of the war in heaven, was exceedingly wroth. So he began to flatter away those people to rise up in rebellion against their brethren. Like Revelation 12 describes Lucifer as the accuser of his brethren in hopes of threatening, scaring, flattering people to his side and away from the fathers. Like I said, Lucifer drew away that third of the host of heaven. But in that rebellion, they were cast out. In verse 8, Paankai was tried by the voice of the people, condemned to death because he had raised up in rebellion and sought to destroy the liberty of the people. Again, sound like Lucifer's plan? Destroying our agency, rebelling against the Father, and therefore condemned to spiritual death, cast out of the Father's presence, along with those that followed him. I think it's amazing the parallels we see just in those first eight verses. 
that kind of set the stage for what we really need to grapple with, the war in heaven that has been transferred to earth, with pride still being a primary cause of them both. But with Paankai dead, we now need to shift from Satan to his followers, and we get to meet three of them very quickly in the next two chapters, Kishkumen, Coriantumr, and Gadianton. And I think between the three, if you kind of make a conglomerate of them, you see Satan's plan continuing here on earth. For example, with Kishkumen, his focus is secrecy, subtlety, disguise. Pride can be so similar, subtle, sometimes hard to recognize, especially when it's in ourselves. But notice what he does in verse 9. Kishkumen is angry at this defeat. So he's the one who sneaks over to the judgment seat and murders Pahoran as he's there. In verse 10, Pahoran's servants pursue him in hopes of capturing and punishing him, but his flight was so speedy that no man could overtake him. Again, this sounds a lot like the adversary as well. Kishkumen wanted to have his way. He didn't get it. And so what does he do? He makes sure nobody else gets their way either. I didn't want Pahoran to be the chief judge. Well, I didn't get my way. Well, fine, you can't have your way either. What a baby, honestly. If I can't play with this toy, then nobody can, and he breaks it. And that's Lucifer to a T. What did Lehi say back in 2 Nephi 2? That Satan is miserable, and he seeks that all men might be miserable like unto him. Nobody gets their way. But in Kishkumen's case, he escapes punishment through this speedy flight. Lucifer did not escape punishment, but he was cast down from heaven like lightning, it says in the book of Luke. Now, in verse 11 and 12, Kishkumen and his followers make this covenant. Ironically, they swear by their everlasting maker. That makes no sense to me. It's kind of like the angel appearing to Korahor saying, I'm an angel, but there is no God. Well, here they are swearing by their everlasting maker not to tell, to protect one another in their wickedness. Verse 12, Kishkumen was not known among the people of Nephi. He was in disguise when he murdered Pahoran. So he and his band covenant together, then mingle themselves among the people so they could not all be found. Again, sound like pride? Sound like wickedness? Not always known, not always recognized, mingling, insinuating itself throughout the populace. We all struggle with it, right? That's one approach that Lucifer continues to take. Well, then you shift gears and see bad guy number two, and that's Coriantumr. And I think the important takeaway from Coriantumr, as it relates to Lucifer, is that he aims straight at the heart. Again, Satan works from the inside out, just like the Lord does. And if I can get hold of your heart, then your outward actions will change accordingly. It's often pride that he uses to do it. Now, in Coriantumr's case, we meet him in verse 15. You see, the Lamanites had gathered together this great army to go attack the Nephites, but they were led by an ex-Nephite himself. They were led by a man whose name was Coriantumr. He was a descendant of Zarahemla, and he was a dissenter from among the Nephites, and he was a large and mighty man. Again, the kind of charisma that we saw back in with Nehor, for example. He was chosen in verse 16 by the king of the Lamanites to lead this army because of his strength and his great wisdom, so now we're combining the strength of Nehor with the wisdom and cunning of a Sherem or a Korahor. Coriantumr is a pretty good personification of all these antichrists. He did dissent from the Nephites, right? Similar to Lucifer. Verse 17, he stirs them up to anger against the Nephites. Verse 18, the problem was because so much contention and difficulty in the government, 
all that we've seen between the sons of Pahor and the first, they had not kept sufficient guards in the land of Zarahemla. After all, they hadn't supposed that the Lamanites would have come to the heart of their lands to attack that great city of Zarahemla. In an interesting way, it's a lot like what Moroni had said to Pahoran about idleness being surrounded by idleness. Here you are in the safety and security of the heart of the land. Do you not care about what's happening in the periphery? Well, they had almost overcorrected, sending so many troops to guard the outskirts of things, the borders of the lands, that there wasn't much protection right there at home. I know it's hard to do both, but that's a balance we've got to strike. Am I strengthening my core beliefs as well as allowing the faith to flow in outward directions? Are we strengthening both the core and the appendages? Well, notice the word again at the end of verse 18. It was the heart of their lands that lay exposed to the strategy of Coriantumr. And in 19, that's where he aims. He goes straight to Zarahemla. His march was with such exceedingly great speed that there was no time for the Nephites to gather together their armies. Satan tries both approaches, the gradual decline into sin or the shock and awe, let's get straight to the heart and try to get pride and wickedness to lead them astray. Verse 20, he cuts down the watch, slays anyone who opposes him and takes possession of the whole city. Boom, Zarahemla has fallen. Now to just tell you the end of Coriantumr's story, that shock and awe approach worked for him, but only momentarily. Yes, he conquered Zarahemla, but then as he was starting to move out to begin to pursue other cities, Moronihah, remember Captain Moroni's son that's now in charge of the Nephite army, he sees, wow, I can't believe we lost the capital. But because our army is all stationed around the outskirts, Coriantumr is now surrounded. Yes, he got what he wanted, but in some ways, he put himself right where we want him. And as Moronihah's armies began closing in, Coriantumr truly was trapped, nowhere to run to, and his army was destroyed. The good guys are back in charge of Zarahemla by the end of chapter 1. But by chapter 2, we then meet bad guy number 3. We've got Kishkumen, who works through subtlety and disguise. We've got Coriantumr, who aims at the heart. And now in chapter 2, we meet Gadianton, whose long shadow will extend through the rest of the Book of Mormon. Mormon himself points that out at the end of this chapter when he says that it's this Gadianton that would prove the overthrow, yea, almost the entire destruction of the people of Nephi. little spoiler alert there. But in Gadianton's case, if Coriantumr worked through power, strength, Gadianton works through words, playing upon the thoughts or emotions of people. Satan does likewise. And Gadianton used murder and robbery to achieve his goals, political power and economic increase. Remember, we saw this back in the war chapters often, ambition and greed, right? Pride and materialism. Chapter 2, verse 4, there was one Gadianton who was exceedingly expert in many words and also in his craft. We could call it priestcraft, except that there's no priest aspect of things. His craft was to carry on the secret work of murder and of robbery. So he becomes the leader of the band of Kishkumen. How does he get there? Like so many others did before him. Whether that was Zarahemna or Amalekiah, verse 5, Gadianton did flatter them and also Kishkumen, that if they would place him in the judgment seat, he would grant unto those who belonged to his band that they should be placed in power and authority among the people. 
That's why Kishkumen, after having already assassinated Pahoran, now seeks to destroy Helaman. We've got to make room on the judgment seat for Gadianton himself. And as he rises, we rise with him. You sense this pride, having to have more, having to rise above? Now again, we'll see Gadianton and his band throughout the rest of the Book of Mormon. But to finish out this initial story, as Kishkumen, again, secrecy disguised, that's his M.O., as he sneaks towards the judgment seat, thankfully, one of Helaman's own servants, fighting fire with fire, going and disguise himself, taking a page out of Kishkumen's book and using some secrecy and subtlety himself, finds out Kishkumen's plan, says, oh, well, I know the way to the judgment seat. Let me lead you there. And once he fully knows what Kishkumen's plan is, he pulls out his own dagger, kills Kishkumen, and in the process, saves Helaman. He then runs and tells Helaman what he's done, who rallies the troops and sends them off. But again, this speedy flight, Gadianton gathers his followers and takes off. He escapes to fight again another day. Lucifer seems to always do likewise. By the way, later in Helaman, this is near the end of chapter 6, we learn something I thought was fascinating. Remember back in Alma 37, when Alma is about to pass the plates down to his son Helaman, and he says, now, I need you to both reveal and conceal some things. Because on the Jaredite plates, there were these records of the ancients and their oaths and their covenants, their secret plans. It was like this initial secret combination. Do not share that with the world. Let them know the results of wickedness and the causes of sin, but don't tell them how it works and how they put it all together. Well, just in case we were worried that somehow that leaked out, because again, Gadianton's robbers sure seem like they took a page out of the Jaredite notebook. From verse 25 through 30 in Helaman 6, we see that they didn't learn these things from the Jaredite records. As it says in 26, they were put into the heart of Gadianton far more directly by that same being who did entice our first parents to partake of the forbidden fruit. 27, the same being who plotted with Cain. That's a fascinating parallel. Murder and get gain. That's exactly what the plan was for Cain. Kill my brother and take his flocks. And as Satan tried to reassure him, and no one will know. Sound like Kishkumen and Gadianton? Secrecy, ambition, murder and get gain. 28, it was the same being who put it into the hearts of the people to build a tower sufficiently high to get to heaven. There's the Tower of Babel. If you ever had to choose a monument to pride, that would be a pretty good pick. It was the same being who always has spread works of darkness and abominations over the land until he drags people down to an entire destruction and an everlasting hell. Again, that's the misery loves company that we see ever since the war in heaven. Verse 29, it's that same being who put it into the heart of Gadianton. The heart, that was Coriantumr's aim, right? Let's go straight to Zarahemla. Satan put it into Gadianton's heart to carry on the work of darkness, secret murder. Verse 30, it's always been him. He who is the author of all sin, who still carries on his works of darkness and secret murder, hands down plots and oaths and covenants and plans of awful wickedness from generation to generation, according as he can get hold upon the hearts of the children of men. And perhaps based on his own experience in premortality, Lucifer knows that the best way to get hold upon the heart of someone is through pride. With that, 
Let's go back to chapter 3. Notice how it begins. It came to pass in the forty and third year of the reign of the judges, there was no contention among the people of Nephi. That's great news compared to all of the intrigue and assassination we saw for the past two chapters. Unfortunately, the verse doesn't end there. In fact, the sentence doesn't even end there. There was no contention among the people of Nephi, save it were, uh-oh, a little pride. Well, it's just a little, true, but it is pride. That's usually how it begins. And it was pride in the church, which caused some little dissensions among the people. But those affairs were settled in the ending of the 40 and third year. Okay, it just kind of popped its head up. Pride is like whack-a-mole, right? Pop it up, well, just hit it back down. Well, again, like whack-a-mole, it's just going to pop up somewhere else. So in spite of its being little, little pride causes little dissension. That's the enmity President Benson talked about in relation to pride. Verse 2, there was no contention among the people in the 40 and 4th year. Neither was there much contention in the 40 and 5th. Uh-oh, you see what we're starting to escalate? Verse 1, no contention, but there was a little pride, which caused a little dissension. Verse 2, no contention. Well, okay, not much contention. Verse 3, next year, there was much contention and many dissensions. Pride is like a cancer, and it spreads rapidly. In fact, in verse 3, if there's much contention and many dissensions, jump ahead to verse 17. Because after a quick aside to talk about kind of the spread of civilization, Mormon returns to his account and says, What I have spoken had passed after there had been great contentions and disturbances and wars and dissensions among the people of Nephi. Verse 19, there is still great contention in the land. What do you do with that? From none to a little to a whole lot? Well, I think it's fascinating that in this chapter you see two very different approaches to how we're going to handle this situation. The growth of pride, including in the church. Well, we see one approach back in verse 3. After he mentions much contention and many dissensions, it says there was an exceedingly great many who departed out of the land of Zarahemla. They went forth unto the land northward to inherit the land. And then we hear a little bit about their spread. Up into the land that had been named Desolation, because of the destruction of the Jaredite civilization. At first I wondered if this were bad guys dissenting from the church again, leaving Zarahemla. But these are actually good guys. In fact, when it talks about the lack of timber in the north, in verse 9 it says that they would suffer whatever tree should spring up upon the face of the land. They let it grow up. So that eventually, in time, they might have timber to build what? Not just houses and cities, but temples and synagogues and sanctuaries. These are good guys. In fact, even that somewhat strange statement about letting trees grow seemed just one more piece of evidence that these really were good guys, that pride was not their problem. Because so often it's pride that makes us want to cut the tree so we can use it on ourselves before it has a chance to really grow and spread. Pride eats its own seed corn, as the farmers would say. It has no thought for the future. I just have to get ahead quickly now. These immigrants spreading north had more of the long view. They played the long game. Why cut down a sapling to use for myself when if I can be patient, later generations will have forests to build from? There's some humility there, some patience. We even see in verse 12 that there were many of the people of Ammon, who were Lamanites by birth, who also went forth into this land. One more piece of evidence that these are the good guys leaving town, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. 
Now, like I said, that is one approach of what to do when these are your days. There is so much evil in Zarahemla, intrigue and assassination, contention, disturbance. Even in the church here, there is pride and dissension. This is no place to raise a family. Again, I'm thinking the long view. I'm going to let trees grow. I want my children to have a chance. So let's get out of Zarahemla. I've seen that often throughout my own life, that this part of the country is, seems to be going to hell in a handbasket. So let's pick up and move somewhere else. We'll find greener pastures in which to raise our children. And I have nothing against that. If that's what you feel you need to do, again, wonderful, righteous people did exactly that and were able to become a righteous people there. But that's not the only option. And it's the other one that I want to spend some more time on today. Because for many of us, we can't just pick up and move. In fact, we might be thinking, where would I move to? Pride is the universal sin. There's nowhere to escape it. Wickedness has become so widespread that there doesn't seem to be any land northward to escape into. I think it was Boyd K. Packer who said, today's days are worse than those of Sodom and Gomorrah because at least Sodom and Gomorrah seem to be concentrated iniquity. Now it's spread to the point that there seems to be no escape. But remember, flight is only one option. Fight is the other. And to stay and fight wickedness, to look into its eye and stand up to it, to face pride and to back it down, that's the second option, and it's the one that Helaman himself chooses. Verse 20, nevertheless, great word to start this part, nevertheless, in spite of all of this, in spite of the fact that these are your days, despite the fact that there is wickedness outside the church and growing pride even within it, nevertheless, Helaman did fill the judgment seat with justice and equity. Yea, he did observe to keep the statutes and the judgments and the commandments of God. He did do that which was right in the sight of God continually, no matter what those were doing all around him. He did walk after the ways of his father, insomuch that he did prosper in the land. And he was doing it just like those who left, with an eye to the rising generation, not thinking to pull them out of this wicked world, but to teach them how not to be of it, even while they remained in it. Verse 21, he had two sons. He named the oldest Nephi and the youngest Lehi, and they began to grow up unto the Lord. What a phrase. Not just to grow up in him, but to grow up unto him. He's the goal. He's the purpose. He's the aim, the destination of your growth. And as a result, of Helaman and his sons staying home and staying strong, the wars and contentions in 22 began to cease, at least in a small degree. In verse 23, there was continual peace established, other than those secret combinations which Gadianton the robber had established in the more settled parts of the land. But even that was with a certain degree of secrecy, again, that's Kishkumen's contribution, that those at the head of government didn't recognize them well enough to be able to root them out. And thanks to Helaman's strength and his desire to stay and strengthen his people, 24, there came exceedingly great prosperity in the church. Thousands joined themselves to the church and were baptized unto repentance. 
Verse 25, the prosperity was so great that it shocked even the priests and the teachers, astonished beyond measure. If thousands were being baptized in 24, tens of thousands were being baptized in 26. And all this, in spite of what was taking place, all around them. Can you see that we can have hope no matter where we live? I grew up in L.A. I felt the opposition around me, but I felt, I don't know, a safety, a security, a strength within my ward and stake. I felt like I had backup from fellow members there in my high school, incredible friends that were strong in faith, and not just among members of my church, strong members of other churches as well among my friend group. Great influences, incredible people. I loved growing up there. Again, there are times where people need to move northward in order to give their children a fighting chance. I get that. This is not to pass judgment on flight. It's simply to remind us that fight is still an option to stay and strengthen the community that you're a part of now, no matter what might be happening all around you. In fact, overall, in the history of the church, flight seems to describe the strategy throughout the 19th and first half of the 20th century. Gather to Zion. Leave the world. Come ye out from among the wicked and come to Kirtland. Come to Independence. Come to Nauvoo. Come to Salt Lake City. And they gathered. They needed to, to establish centers of strength. But ever since the second half of the 20th century, the call of prophets and apostles has not been one of flight. It has been one of fight. Or to put it more gently, stay. Every stake of Zion is its own gathering place with their own president and patriarch and increasingly so their own house of the Lord, the ultimate place of safety. You see, what I love about this is what Mormon interjects right after describing this stay and change things where you are. Verse 27 and 28 and 29 all begin with a thus we see statement which is when Mormon just can't help himself. He has to interject and say, oh, oh, I've got a moral to the story. Here I am writing the story. Can I give you one of my morals? He's finding a principle here, which is the ultimate approach to scripture study we all need to take. As often as you possibly can while studying your scriptures, stop and say, and thus I see. What am I seeing here? What takeaway? What's my lesson? How do I apply this to my own life? Well, here's three thus we sees that are as applicable to us as ever they were to Mormon or to Helaman originally. Remember the context. Craziness happening all around, but strengthening of the church as people choose to follow the Lord regardless of circumstance. And often these thus we sees can be rephrased as if-then statements. That's a good way to package principles yourself. What am I seeing? What's the moral of the story? Oh, well, if this, then that. It's a great way to live. If I do this, then that will happen. Well, how's this for an if-then from verse 27? If we sincerely call upon the Lord, then he will be merciful to us. And I would add, no matter what the outside influences. Keep that in mind for each of these, because it's in spite of outside influences that Helaman is staying and strengthening the church, raising his sons in righteousness. In verse 28, his second, 
He says, Thus we see that the gate of heaven is open unto all, even to those who will believe on the name of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Rephrase that into an if-then in context. And what do we see? If we believe in Jesus Christ, then the gate of heaven is open to us, no matter what the outside influences. You see in this? In 27, no matter what happens on the outside, they cannot stop the mercy of God being extended to us if we will sincerely call upon his name. No matter what the outside influences, they cannot close the gate of heaven as long as we continue to place our faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 29 and 30 together are the third of the three. In Mormon's words, Yea, we see that whosoever will may lay hold upon the word of God which is quick and powerful, which shall divide asunder all the cunning and the snares and the wiles of the devil, and lead the man of Christ in a straight and narrow course across that everlasting gulf of misery which is prepared to engulf the wicked, and land their souls, yea, their immortal souls, at the right hand of God in the kingdom of heaven, to sit down with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob and with all our holy fathers, to go no more out. How would I rephrase that with my own if-then if we want to lay hold upon the Word of God, then we can, no matter what the outside influences. And if we do, then it will land our souls on the right hand of God. That is the ultimate protection. We'll be sitting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all our holy fathers. That is the ultimate company. And we'll never have to go out. That is the ultimate permanent security. What's making me want to just escape the world and isolate myself, quarantine, spiritually speaking, permanently? It's the fear that we're not going to be able to make it here, that I'll never be able to get my kids to connect with God. I've got to find a better neighborhood, a better ward to help them grow up in. I've got to get out of here. But you don't have to. Thus we see the mercy of God is always available to us. The gate of heaven is always open. God is always accessible. So hold out for it. We don't have to insulate ourselves from the world. We just need to inoculate ourselves against its influences. And that's a heart issue too. That's exactly what Helaman is trying to do here. Not only for himself, but for his children. And not only for his family, but for all the people around him. And it's working. It's working in beautiful ways. By the way, I love that Mormon's focus, as he's compiling scripture, is scriptural. How do we stay strong? How do we call upon the Lord? How do we believe on the name of Jesus Christ? How do we cut through the snares and wiles of the devil? Through the word of Christ. It's that quick. It's that powerful. It's that cutting through the cunning that's all around us. It's what gets to the heart of things as it changes our hearts when we study it. As we seem to be encompassed about by evil, wickedness just closing in, trying to look across this gulf of misery that's all around us. It's the scriptures that provide that straight and narrow course across that gulf of misery that is not only prepared to engulf the wicked, but is starting to feel like it's engulfing even the righteous, like a beam of light 
that cuts through the darkness. The Word of God cuts asunder the tricks of the devil, the wiles of the worldly. It marks the clearest path home. Remember, this is the sword I get in the armor of God. And with this, I feel like I can take on any foe, even in the middle of enemy territory. Listen to something President Henry B. Eyring taught back in 2005. He said, the great test of life is to see whether we will hearken to and obey God's commands in the midst of the storms of life. This is not righteousness in a vacuum. This isn't just turn and flee somewhere else. This is right here in the middle of the storm. President Irene said, it is not to endure storms, but to choose the right while they rage. It's exactly what Helaman's doing. It will take unshakable faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to choose the way to eternal life. I love that President Irene said, our faith needs to be unshakable. It's a great word, one of my favorites. And he said, we will need to have developed and nurtured faith in Jesus Christ long before Satan hits us, as he will, with doubts and appeals to our carnal desires and lying voices saying that good is bad and that there is no sin. It's exactly what's happening here throughout the book of Helaman. Those spiritual storms are already raging. And he said, we can expect that they will worsen until the Savior returns, which is only a few chapters away in 3 Nephi 11. One conference later, that was from October 2005. By April of 2006, President Irene had not changed his message. If anything, he had intensified it. He said, anyone with eyes to see the signs of the times and ears to hear the words of prophets know that the peril is great. It's that peril that makes us just want to pick up and leave permanently. He said, the peril comes from the forces of wickedness and those forces are increasing. It will become harder, not easier, to keep the covenants we must make to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, and this is the part that gave me hope, President Irene said, there is hope in the promise the Lord has given us of a place of safety in the storms ahead. And then he provided what he called a word picture of that place of safety. He did it by quoting a verse of scripture. And guess where he found it? The book of Helaman. He described that place of safety, quoting Helaman chapter 5, verse 12, which we will see shortly. And then he concluded his talk with this powerful promise. I know that we can choose the promised joy of eternal life, however perilous the times. Can you hear that echo of Mormons, thus we seize? We can choose joy and eternal life, no matter what the outside influences. The world will never become so wicked that we cannot choose to be righteous. Satan will never have so much power that we cannot choose to follow Christ. No darkness is intense enough to blot out the light of the world. So before you consider running to brighter territory, consider staying firm and letting his light so shine.